everybody. I'm Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. I am so excited about this next interview. Arlen Hamilton caught my attention on social media. She's loud, she's proud, and she is not afraid to speak her mind. Then I saw her on the cover of Fast Company, and I knew I needed to meet her. As a young black girl in Dallas, Texas, Hamilton quickly learned she couldn't fulfill her dreams without breaking some rules. The daughter of a single mom, she talked her way into the music industry and became a tour manager for a Norwegian punk band and learned the art of the deal backstage. Eventually, she found her way to Silicon Valley. By day, she pitched her big idea. By night, she slept on the floor of the airport, living on food stamps. Luckily, an angel investor recognized her grit and cut her a $25,000 check. After that big break, Hamilton launched Backstage Capital, a venture firm that backs women, people of color, and LGBT founders. She identifies as all three, yet again breaking rules in an industry dominated by white men. Hamilton joined us to talk about her humble beginnings, her courage to speak out, and her new accelerator designed to find founders who might never otherwise have gotten a chance. Joining me today on Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Backstage Capital founder and managing partner, Arlen Hamilton. start with your core investment strategy, which is unlike any I've ever heard in Silicon Valley. Explain it to us. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who have been overlooked and underestimated, who have been left out of um, the party, so to speak. And they, at the same time, they're not just sitting around waiting for something, someone to come to them or something to happen. They are doing things on their own at a discounted rate. And so if The thesis is, if they uh, are doing things with so little, what happens when we give them more? So I then took that and decided to invest in women, people of color, and LGBT founders. So what if you find the next Mark Zuckerberg and he doesn't fit into any of those categories? You just let him walk away? Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) um, sorry, that's that's actually funny. I have zero problem watching another Mark Zuckerberg walk away. I get a lot of deals that come my way that are from straight white men who probably will do very well for themselves. It just doesn't excite me. It's almost like saying I'm a fintech uh, investor and someone wants to bring me something that's a SaaS cloud something. It's just not my discipline. I think the next uh, person who changes could change the world will make Mark Zuckerberg look like a novelty. And uh, and yeah, so I, 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 don't, I tend not to try to say I'm trying to find the next Mark Zuckerberg anymore because uh, I want better. So you started Backstage Capital in 2015. How many investments to date? How much have you invested? Yeah, so we've invested about five million across 100 companies. So very early, early stage that we got in. Um, between $25,000 and $100,000 a piece. Almost like an accelerator or um, an angel fund, something like that. So it is early stage. Have you had any exits? Have you had returns? No exits. Um, We've had what naturally happens in a portfolio where we've had people go on to raise further funding. We've had people uh, generating jobs and uh, very happy customers. And I think the most important metric that we actually don't do a great job of reporting on is the revenue that has been generated by our portfolio. It's tens and tens of millions, if not more. So I I think we're um, 
by our account and by a lot of people's account, we're, the fund is doing really well the way that we want it to. Do you have a timeline where you want to see exits, where yeah. you will assess your own success? Absolutely. I think if we reach the end of 2020 and we have not seen some sort of interesting exit from our portfolio, then we should be concerned. Uh, the thesis itself, we should be concerned about that. But I also believe that we'll see more than one. You've been the main character in a hit podcast. You've been on the <laughs> cover of Fast Company. You've yes. been the headliner of various conferences around the world. Yes. And there are people in Silicon Valley who think you don't deserve that recognition yeah. yet. Yeah. What do you have to say to those people? I mean, they're, they're entitled to their own opinion. I'm not going to say they're wrong, because maybe they're right. But you live once. I know my intention. I know the work that I do. I know the impact, or some of the impact, of the cover, for instance, of Fast Company. I can't tell you how many people who've never heard of Mark Zuckerberg or, or Mark Andreessen who came up to me and said, I have that magazine, and I saw myself on the cover of a business magazine for the first time. I want to talk about how you became so resilient. What kind of kid were you? You grew up in Dallas, Texas. Tell yes. us what a young Arlen Hamilton was like. <laughs> I think I was a little odd. I think of, I look back on myself a lot, uh, reflecting, and um, there was a lot of like, sort of pain. You know, I was, grew up really fast. I had to take care of things at home really, really early. I was watching my younger brother by seven or something like that, and taking care of him. A wonderful mother, and she's amazing and still is. Um, but I think I grew up really fast, so I used humor to break that. And so once I realized I could cut up a class and make a class, an entire room laugh, uh, it sort of took me away from what I was worried about at home financially. As I understand it, you ended up in the principal's office. I ended a up in a few times. Oh yeah, I mean to the point where the principal just wouldn't come out. At, at, <laughs> you know, it was just like okay, the secretary or someone would just say sit down for thirty minutes and then go back to your class. What would what would land you in the principal's office? I was black in Texas, and there was a whole there was a lot going on there, and so a lot of times um, it was my curiosity that would get me in trouble, which is not good, right? That's not a good thing. That's um, so I would ask. We would be told something in the class, and I would just think in my mind, I would just be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not logical. And I'd raise my hand and ask why. And we'd go through this why, why, why. You know, kids say why. I just never stopped. I would just get sent for asking too many questions. That was like, if you look at like my old report cards, it w I would have behavioral problems because I was always talking. I was always interviewing people and wondering about their lives. And So how did you break out of that? I mean, was I never, there a I never turning did. point? No, I never did. I still ask questions. I still ask people about their lives. And I'm still, I still speak up when I, when I don't know something or when I want to know more. Um, that's never, that never changed. Now, you went to a Janet Jackson concert. Yes. When you were 13 Janet. years old. Janet. <laughs> and something changed. Yeah, I was 13. The very first concert I ever went to. And I looked back on that audience and I saw every race, every orientation for the first time. There were families, there were single people. It was just such a utopia to me. And they were all singing the same lyrics. And they were all singing those lyrics with all of their hearts to a black woman on stage. You decided then that you wanted to work on concert tours. Yes. And, yes. <laughs> but I mean, how did you break in to the music business? I came across this band, this Norwegian pop punk band, as you do. And um, I liked their music. I got in touch with them on AOL chat. 
<laughs> and I said, hey, can you come and play music? You know, I want to see you live. And they were like, sure, yeah, we can't do that. We're in Norway. So I said, if I book a tour for you, will you come here? And they were like, sure, sure you can. So I taught myself how to book a tour. Where do you start? I had Wednesdays off. So every Wednesday, I would just call across the country. I would research, find these small clubs and bars. I would figure out, okay, a production manager does this, a booking agent does that. Okay, I would call. And so the first wave of calling 20 places, I would get no's because I didn't know the jargon. I didn't know what I was asking for. Once I, I took the no's, and said, well, how, why did they say no? What did I say wrong? So the next call and the next call and the next call would be a little bit more refined. And then finally, I was over here with the, with the phone on my arm and I was typing and I was like, yeah, so listen, Snake, we're gonna, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna come in, we're getting 20% of the door, we're not coming, you know? <laughs> it was this whole thing, just fake it till you make it and, and just and become it. listening to my conversation with Backstage Capital founder Arlen Hamilton. Up next, Hamilton has actually turned down money, but from who and why? I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. You went on to work for Tony Braxton. Yeah. CeeLo Green. Yeah. Jason Derulo. How did you go from music to Silicon Valley? It actually kind of correlates because it was while I was on tour that I I knew of a Troy Carter, so Lady Gaga's manager. I knew of a Scooter Braun, Justin Bieber's manager. They were all making these investments, these small investments into startups in a place called Silicon Valley. And to me, you know, that sounded like, okay, that sounds interesting. Let me see why these interesting people are interested in that. And I realized, oh my goodness, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a startup founder. That, these are my people. How did you learn about Silicon Valley? How did you find this place? How did you figure it out? You, um, I've been watching you for, I think it's been about five years. You're a staple here. And so much so that I associate Silicon Valley with your, with your image. And it was a combination of just looking up every video possible on YouTube. There's some podcasts I could listen to, but mostly it was like reading blogs and, and just reading everything. And then I created flashcards. So I had index, I bought index cards and I put everybody's, like the player's name on it. So like Mark Andreessen and Stuart Butterfield and Aaron Levy and all of these people, they're now investors in our fund. But I first, had them on these cards of like, what, who are they? What do they mean to the ecosystem? And so I was just teaching myself everything I could because I wanted to be ready to go in and pitch to an investor. I wanted to know what was on the other side. And it was then, while in that process of, oh, I want to start my own company, that's when I started seeing, oh, wait a minute, no one is taking me seriously. And if they're not taking me seriously, and I just went through all of this, I wonder how they're taking someone who maybe doesn't put a G at the end of their sentence, at the end of their words, or maybe has a slight Southern accent, or maybe didn't go to the college that they did, that, that they went to, and isn't as confident as I am in talking about why that's okay. Because the, the investors, these white men, which is, was mostly what I was talking to, they were not bad people. They were not like jerks, for the most part. Some of them were, and you know who you are. Some of them were. <laughs> But most of them were just like kind of in their own little bubble, in their own little world, and they just wouldn't go past that. Now, you made it from 
Texas to Silicon Valley. Yes, I did. But it wasn't a straight line. I mean, you were sleeping on the floor of the airport. Yes. You were on food stamps. Yeah, it was, um, it was tough a lot, a lot of those times. And that actually goes back to why when people say that I don't deserve, deserve this, I, I just kind of think to myself, okay, they weren't there on the floor with me at the airport watching venture capitalists walk by with their roller bags. Because every day, I didn't know that I was gonna stay there that next day. Mm. It was always, oh, well, this was, that last night was the last time I'm doing that. Like, of mm. course, I'm gonna figure something out. So it was um, like, okay, am I going to get to eat today? Mm. That was the question. So how did you get your first big break? I think, well, there's a lot of little things that kind of led up to it, but I think you can argue that the biggest break was Susan Kimberlin coming along and, and, and giving me $25,000 to invest in me. And said she said, I believe in you. I don't know what this is. I don't know what this will become. But I do believe in uh, that you will tr make something of it. So let's see what you can do. Mark Andreessen, Stuart Butterfield, Aaron Levy, all people that you mentioned are yeah. now investors. Yeah, they are. How do you get a Mark Andreessen to listen? Well, I think it starts by recognizing that Mark is as human as I am and as we're, we're equal. I should add that Bloomberg Beta is also an investor in yes, backstage. Yes, at our latest, yeah, yeah. Do you ever worry that you're just checking a box for some of these people? Oh, I, so I don't worry that I am. I know that I am in mm. some cases. It doesn't bother me, though. Why not? Because um, there's some money that I don't take and I have turned down and I, and I won't take. And I have, you know, conviction around that. Whose money have you turned down? I've turned down money uh, that was associated with Peter Thiel very, like in the same month that he doubled down on his uh, investment and donation to Trump. And um, it, was, it wasn't an easy decision because- right. the, wasn't it like $250,000? Yeah, it was that. But that was, um, uh, it was a complex decision, but an easy one is how I say it. You've taken on people like Peter Thiel, Paul Graham, people who are worshipped mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And that's not been easy for you, I imagine, because mm -hmm. the response has been harsh. Sure. You have sort of an equal number of supporters and an equal number of trolls. I've seen it yeah. on social media. Yeah. Why do that? Because it's the truth. It's how I feel. I'm not, tr I'm not out looking for trouble. Um, but the same reason that they are allowed in this country to say what they say, feel what they feel, and do that out loud, and in their cases it has a massive effect on other people, I, I should be able to speak my mind and, and say that that's wrong. It's as simple as that. But look, you were worried about your safety. I was worried. I had to hire security and... Do you ever want to just leave Silicon Valley and leave the trolls behind? Sometimes, some days it's really, really difficult when I'm trying to raise capital and against all odds. And a lot of people don't look like me and I have to explain myself constantly. And I also have people who, um, yeah, who just, who put in their foot out, you know, as I walk. And so sometimes I will think, maybe I should pack it up. And I've, I've done, you know, mic drop and bounce and I'm going, I'm gonna go back on the road, go, you know, go to a concert in the sun. And then I'll meet a black woman from outside of Silicon Valley with tears in her eyes, honestly and literally, and she'll say, I started a company because I read about you a year ago. 
and you're changing my life. Um, keep doing what you're doing. We need you. Keep doing what you're doing. And the, again, I'm reminded, okay, this is, a, this is bigger than me, and it, uh, there's a lot of selfishness that could come along with just leaving it. That was my conversation with Arlen Hamilton, founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. Coming up, we talk about the recently launched Backstage Accelerator and why one day she hopes she's out of business and obsolete. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. Let's talk about backstage. Okay. Because you've been on the road, you're running this accelerator. What is the latest? Yeah, so we are we are have we have an accelerator and we're excited about that. It's been a year in the making. 24 companies in four cities across the country and in London. So Los Angeles, Detroit, Philadelphia, and London. And we got 1850 applications in 5 weeks from underrepresented, underestimated founders. When 5 years ago people were asking me if they exist. So we are, um, I think it's a triumph already. We're focusing on that, we're focusing on other investments and uh, taking care of our portfolio. So we're um, focusing a lot on how do we keep up with nurturing the portfolio and scaling in a way that makes sense because there's only a few of us. You've also got this $1 million microfund. Yeah, Mark, Mark Cuban. Cuban is one of the investors. The he's the sole LP. He's the sole LP. So Mark Cuban, he reached out to me. We, we spoke in, in Austin at South By, and he reached out to me a, a couple of weeks later and said, hey, here's a million dollars. I want you to invest it. And he's been hands off. So it's a million. I have autonomy in what I invest in. And I think those are the types of moves that really move the needle. Because it's just a little bit of money. But it's about that, um, that it's a confidence check, as someone has, has said before. It's that sort of like that stamp of he's paying attention, he understands his privilege, and he's paying it for it. Simple as that. And a lot of people could do that. Now, at the same time, Axios has reported that the $36 million fund that you were trying to raise fell through. Yes. What happened? Well, quotation marks, I like that, air, air quotes. Um, he, they reported that it fell through. I dispute that. I do not consider this falling through. I'm in the middle of a raise. As many, many venture capitalists can uh, relate, we are in the, in the process of raising a fund. And um, we had a couple of anchors who are lead investors back out. And I think- Why did they back out? I don't think I want to put the rosy kind of bow on it. They backed out um, and they did it in a way that was uh, harmful to our, to our race. And I think you'd have to ask them directly why they did it. Are you still trying to raise the fund? Yeah, we're absolutely raising somewhere along the way while we were heads down working on this. Axios and others decided to pick up a story because they, it, it was a little bit like blood in the water. It was yeah. a little bit like, okay, if you, if you already believe that there's too much of me <laughs> out there, you already believe that I'm getting too much praise, one little ding to the armor may 
may feel like a, a, a good time to, to step in and say something. So you feel like it was unfair or inaccurate? I think it was inaccurate, and I know it was inaccurate. It was not based on facts. I think it was, I think some of it was accurate because they're right, we haven't raised the full 36 million, but the sort of tone of it was really um, odd and almost biased. We reached out to Axios for a response and they told us Axios is committed to truth and accuracy in all of its reporting and stands by the article. Is it true that you were also talking to Carlos Ghosn? the former CEO of Nissan Renault before, yeah, like the weeks before he got arrested. Yeah, his team, his ex full executive team, um, just weeks before, just a couple of weeks actually, before he was arrested in, in Japan. About $5 million for operations for Backstage, would, which would have been, would have changed our trajectory. So that also that fell also, through. That, well, that, that definitely <laughs> fell through. But again, you didn't see me going out and saying, hey, woe is, woe is me. This fell through five million. Can someone help? We just we we internally we said, okay, what do we do next? What are the companies that you're most excited about? What are the sectors uh, that you're most? Yeah, excited so I about? don't spend a lot of time looking at trends, and I, I'm very open about um, what my role is and what what role I play. So I focus on the founders, and I focus on what I think the companies can become. And a good example of a company that may have may not have been seen. If, if it weren't for backstage, it's Curl Mix. Mm. They do hair products for uh, women who have, uh, women and men who have curly hair. Um, and they're a black couple from Chicago. And I met them when they were doing less than 10,000 in revenue per month. They were making these kits out of their kitchen and selling them uh, subscription boxes and things like that. And that was two years ago. Um, this year, they had a million dollar month in revenue. And we put in 25000 early, and just we were there when they needed that. And I don't think that they would have gotten the attention from someone else. And they're, gonna, they're turning down money right now. Well, then you have someone like Jessica Matthews at Uncharted Power in Harlem. She wants to be the first unicorn out of Harlem. She's invented um, all types of uh, consumer products that, as you're using them, they, they uh, generate energy, so renewable energy company. The work that she's doing right now is probably going to power cities that we walk in in the future, and it's already started. And she, I believe that she can become that billion-dollar company if she wants to. Do you think when more people are investing with your mindset mm -hmm. that Silicon Valley will really be a meritocracy? Could be. So if those, all those people who are becoming angels invest in their buddies, because most of them are, are not, you know, they're still uh, overrepresented. But if uh, a good deal of them, even a, a, a significant percentage of them, were to say, look, I am going to uh, follow suit. I'm going to look at this backstage capital, what they're doing. I'm going to look at these other companies, these other funds. And I'm going to diversify my thinking and, and widen my lens, then absolutely, I mean, it only, it's only logical that that would lead to then more companies being properly funded and those companies doing well that are led by underrepresented founders. And then one day, hopefully, uh, I'm out of business. I'm, I'm obsolete because they're no longer underrepresented. So you want to make yourself obsolete? Absolutely. That would be a beautiful day. What would you do if you were obsolete? <laughs> I'd get an RV and live my life. For all the little girls out there who are watching this, who might be black, 
or queer or loud and having their Janet Jackson moment, mm -hmm. what do you want to say to them? Um, this is as much yours as it is anyone else's. This is ours. Someone has lied to you in the past if you think that you can't be part of this. So I'd love to see those. If you're 15 or 10 years old, I'd love to see you in the 10 years from now. There's still time. Become an engineer, become a, a, a founder, um, at the least become a customer of products and companies that are, that are led by underrepresented people and be part of this. The future is yours. All right, yeah. Arlen Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.